Anzi's making cookies, and so there's an amount of noise that's uh, that's unavoidable. Mmm, cookies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And a um, moment of silence for Sam. Indeed. All right. Uh, just to, you know, all uh, important things aside, the, you know, the, the, the Samless void is still unfilled. Uh, but besides that, you know, you can always try to fill it with other things. So, uh, Steven, what are you drinking right now? I am drinking some apple cider. I think looking back on it, it's been a while since we've done this, but I think that was what I was having last time. But hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Word, word, word. As for myself, I'm having some uh, lovely Evan Williams green label. Uh, so mm. I, didn't, I, I didn't know this until terribly recently, but Evan Williams, my favorite sort of like mid-lower shelf bourbon, uh, that's my staple, uh, has three different versions. So there's the, the black label, which is the the normal so that's 43 percent um pretty solid i would say pretty good hints of like vanilla uh towards the end um then there's the white label which is they're bottled in bond so this is like a higher classification it like it has to be stored in a government warehouse uh and it's it, that's a 50 percenter um, is it like a four british eyes only sort of situation going on yeah yeah you know yeah 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 um so that's that's sort of like their premium although i think it's the the fifty percent's a little bit strong. It starts to burn off some of the 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 flavor that the um, black label had has. Uh, and then the one that I'm trying today is the green label. So this is their uh, their lowest alcohol content at forty. And this one, interestingly, has a little bit of the vanilla taste, but also weirdly enough, it was just it's described in marketing this way, and I have to concur. A little bit of like a banana flavor somehow, um, like very very light, very very just a hint uh but it does taste just a little bit of banana uh which i did not anticipate actually being the case so uh yeah uh i'll be going back to black label after this so the banana does not add to the experience is what you're saying uh it it doesn't so instinctively you would think it would take a lot away it doesn't take a lot away but it doesn't add it terribly Uh, like like it's not yeah yeah it's I, so you I, just end up with minus three percent alcohol and plus three percent banana, and it's at best a parallel move. Yeah, at best a parallel move if you just you know want things to taste like someone like quickly took like a slightly overripe banana and just dipped it very quickly in and out of your drink. Um, yeah, so uh, not not going to be ten out of ten. Uh, probably won't get again, but you know the more you you live, the more you learn. Uh, the the more you you slowly. Uh, go insane. But speaking of... You should get that embroidered. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I like how you said embroidered as opposed to like get it on a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just imagining like one of those like it's in your entryway, your guests come in and like look mm. at it and kind of like smile in that quaint like oh that's nice sort of way. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, anyway, speaking of brain deficiencies, uh, we are now concluding finally here and now on this podcast, the first section of The Master and His Emissary. Chapter 6, the last of the, well, so-called uh, neuroscience section that's been laying the foundation for the cultural whirlwind I'm sure we're about to Im- 
embark upon. And uh, Stephen, I believe you have the first half of chapter six. Why, yes, I do. Yes, the first half of the of, of chapter six, uh, the triumph of the left hemisphere. So uh, viewers will recall that, or listeners rather, will recall that we have, or McGilchrist has established that the right hemisphere is the proper dominant hemisphere or the master hemisphere. Uh, it is both what grounds our experience in reality and what integrates the contributions of the left hemisphere. So it's both the beginning and the end, as it were. Uh, the left hemisphere is just a through point. Um, in this chapter, he wishes to discuss the relationship between the two hemispheres, particularly with regards to split brain patients, um, as kind of a, a nice case study on what happens when, uh, when this relationship is broken. Uh, he quickly gives us a prelude into what a disturbed relationship would look like. Quote, the left hemisphere is competitive and its concern, its prime motivation is power. If the working relationship were to become disturbed so that the left hemisphere appeared to have primacy or become became the endpoint or final staging point on the processing of, a, uh, of experience, the world would change into something quite different. And we can say fairly clearly what that would be like. It would be relatively abstract and disembodied, relatively distanced from fellow feeling, given to explicitness, utilitarian in ethic, overconfident in its own take on reality, and lacking insight into its problems, end quote. This sounds disturbingly like McIntyre in the alternate world where he went into neuroscience instead of ethics. Uh, it sounds like the uh, metaphysical wasteland that he described back in, uh, in After Virtue. Uh, he goes, he, so that was kind of his, his nice little prelude on to this is, this is kind of what he's going to be postulating. Then he goes back to his main uh, focus at hand uh, in discussing the corpus callosum. Uh, so that is the bridge between the two hemispheres, the two worlds, as it were. Uh, a reminder from, I think, chapter two, I want to say, uh, maybe one. The corpus callosum is uh, a, a, a bridge that is inhibitory. Uh, imagine the, the two hemispheres as two hands playing a piano. Yes, they need to stay on the same rhythm and work with each other, but to an extent they need to be unaware of each other in order to be able to do their own thing. Uh, this inhibition takes three forms of courting to, I'm going to botch his name, or one of the names, Chiarello and Maxfield. Uh, the first is isolation. Uh, that is, quote, the inhibition of communication, and it enables one hemisphere to be cut off from the other to prohibit crosstalk that might interfere, end quote. Interference, quote, the failure to inhibit communication, which consequently inhibits successful function, end quote. And then suppression, quote, active inhibit inhibition of the homologous area of the contralateral hemisphere, end quote. Uh, split brain patients are those who have, have severed corpus callosum, typically to prevent um, epilepsy or to prevent, typically in the case of epilepsy, to prevent severe seizures. And they live remarkably normal lives for having such an invasive procedure uh, take place. Uh, this is possibly due to the fact that each hemisphere has had years of um, kind of being able to establish its own rhythm, establish its own mode of interacting with the world. Uh, quote, by the time the brain is surgically divided, each hemisphere has had years of working with an intact corpus callosum during which to establish its own specialized modes of operation, laid down as memories in the patterns of neuronal connection within each hemisphere. So it is not the establishing, only the functional maintenance of such specialization that is impaired, end quote. So pretty much what has already been laid down is fine. It's just going to be really difficult to create. So if you have your corpus callosum severed at age two, you're going to be in a bit of trouble, but severed at age 30, well, a lot of these neural networks, or sorry, these um, uh, neural paths have already been laid down. He notes that the first few months after the operation are exceptions to this. 
there is seemingly an internal conflict of wills, uh, replete with one hand literally taking what was offered with the other. Of particular interest was that it was consistently the left hand resisting the right, or the right hemisphere resisting the left, which is different than what you would think it would be, but more on that later. Let's see. Oh, I just kind of a, a nice qu uh, quote from uh, the winner of a Nobel Prize for his work on split brains, Roger Sperry. Quote, both the left and right hemispheres may be conscious, uh, conscious simultaneously in different, even in mutually conflicting mental experiences that run along in parallel. And this is McGilchrist's uh, main project for the uh, next, I would say, for my half of the of the chapter. This is where he wants to explore primarily in three levels of this relationship between the two hemispheres. You have level one, which he has as kind of the the day to day interactions. Uh, he uses the analogy of two business partners uh, that are running a small business together, where one might be the one calling up customers and running kind of the day-to-day -day business as far as um, interactions are concerned, making deals, uh, showing wares, et cetera, et cetera. The other one might be the IT guy, the one in the back that's um, that's setting up all their technology infrastructure, that's keeping track of all the bills, that's doing you know all the, the balancing of the checkbook, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, on the day-to-day -day interactions, one might be calling up business, businesses, making sales. The other might be, you know, uh, checking invoices or doing this and that. Uh, level two is the role of the two partners. Uh, that is to say, kind of on a grander scheme, one's role is to take care of business relations. One's role is to run the IT. It's a, a bit more abstract. And then level three is the long-term goals. Maybe the in this analogy, clearly the right brain is the uh, business interaction person, wants to grow the business and wants to make sure that everyone is working together and kind of happy and whatnot. But the IT guy is like, actually, no, I really want to kind of start my own IT firm and kind of leave this place. Um, and that's the long-term goal. So these are the three levels that he is going to discuss. Uh, so level one, uh, this is not really day-to-day, -day, more millisecond to millisecond with regard to hemispheres. A normal existence uh, requires what both hemispheres bring to the table, intuition and conceptualization. Note that like, there's a reason that we have our left hemisphere. Uh, we shouldn't just be getting that cut out because we need that conceptualization. Uh, noteworthy is the manner in which the two hemispheres vie for control of tasks, uh, referring back to the split-brain patients. Um, not, uh, not much by specialization as you would think. It's more whoever gets to it first. Quote, their mode of interaction is not one in which they cooperate over what each does best, like some parody of an ideal bureaucratic government, but instead, it's more like the real thing, one of rivalry between departments, end quote. And then, quote again, it's as if each hemisphere took the view, if this letter looks as if it's addressed to me, I'm going to deal with it, even if it turns out on opening that it was really addressed to you, end quote. And this is actually possibly advantageous. Uh, it reduces latency that comes with communication. Uh, it may be quicker for the more inefficient one to just go ahead and do it rather than to kind of package it up, send it over to the other hemisphere, even if it's going to be able to get done slightly faster. Uh, I'll do a side note. That's actually one of the topics in my parallel processing class is kind of when to like when to enforce that and when not to, because communication between different nodes on a computer is actually the most costly part of a lot of the um, or of a lot of processes. Uh, but that's you know, neither here nor there. Uh, quote, the mutually inconsistent modes of processing adopt of processing adopted by, oh, and my computer screen's just turned off. Just a second. Okay, we're back. We're back. Quote, the mutually inconsistent modes of processing adopted by the hemispheres create a difficulty, requiring something like an umpire for situations in which both cerebral hemispheres have access to the same information at the same time, in, end quote. And here's where McGillicrest starts kind of pointing to something that is a unifying 
field for both of the hemispheres. Um, and he says that this may be at a very low level, possibly as far down as the brainstem. Um, and then I, then he quickly moves on to level two. This was a very short part, level one. He, he only discussed that for about a page or two. Uh, level two, this discusses the medium-term cooperation antagonism of the two hemispheres. Uh, what happens when two hemispheres cooperate on a task? Uh, noteworthy, it, it is noteworthy that when doing a particular task with just one hemisphere, one area will light up, but when engaging both hemispheres, entirely different sections of both hemispheres will light up. It's not as if 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 they had suppressed my left hemisphere and I'm doing something with my right hemisphere, area A will show up. But then if I'm doing with both hemispheres, area B and of my right and area C of my left will be will be working, which is quite odd. He moves on to discuss that hemispheric utilization bias, uh, which is a phenomenon in which people can, over larger stretches of time, employ one hemisphere preferentially. Uh, There was an experiment in which a task was being done while distracting information was presented uh, to one hemisphere or the other. Those who displayed left hemisphere bias found this highly distracting, but it's noteworthy that those with right hemisphere uh, bias uh, kept to the task at hand. Um, so we see again that left is it's very good at focusing on one particular thing, but the moment something else shows up, it will focus on that instead. And so distractions abound, whereas the right is good at integrating everything and being able to deal with multiple things. Um, he notes in, in this, I actually found quite interesting that brain injury patients, if one side is damaged, uh, damage, similar damage to the other side will actually improve function on the original damaged hemisphere. So if the right is damaged and then the left is damaged after that, the right hemisphere will improve due to that damage to the left. Um, and note that this is, uh, again, asymmetrical. Uh, suppressive, the suppressive effect of the left hemisphere on the right is greater than the reverse. Sorry, I should, I should elaborate. Uh, here, it's because, in essence, re- recalling that the interaction, especially with the corpus callosum, is inhibitory. The right will inhibit the left. The left will really inhibit the right. Um, that's, that's how the relationship between those two work. And so if you damage one, you damage the ability for it to suppress the other hemisphere. Uh, So those with early brain injury in the verbal area, for example, develop verbal function in the right hemisphere hemisphere, and in fact show IQ deficits in their nonverbal functions because the presence of of language in the right hemisphere interferes. And here is where he starts bringing us back to his uh, his little uh, prelude with um, uh, split brain patients and their seemingly conflicting wills. Uh, recalling the conflicting hands, for example, of a split, uh, split brain patient uh, in the first few months following the procedure. Uh, it's always the left hand that is the rebel because the right brain is silent. It can't articulate what it wants, unlike the left, and that's why it's considered the rebel. Quote, once the script has been written and the play half performed by the left hemisphere, an incursion from the right hemisphere is bound to be disruptive and unwelcome from its point of view. It's the left hemisphere, ignorant of what is going on in the right hemisphere, that both decides what it is that, quote, I want, end quote, and then judges any interruption from the right hemisphere as contrary to, quote, my, quote, end quote, best, uh, best intentions, end actual quote. So if I want to wear this for the split brain patient, they reach out and they get the red shirt, the right, or sorry, they'll reach out with the right hand, left hemisphere, grab the red shirt, and then the left hand will seemingly of its own will grab it and and grab it and put it back on the shelf because it doesn't want that. Um, it is silence. We're not aware, or the the split brain patient is not aware of that desire because the right hemisphere is silent, and so it's viewed as a rebel. Uh, and yet, even with all this going on, there's still a unified field of, field of consciousness with uh, split brain patients. It, even though their two their two wills are split. 
it's still viewed as a single experience. It's not as if they have two different consciousnesses simultaneously going on, um, or consciousnesses, rather. Uh, quote, it seems to be more fruitful to think of consciousness not as something with sharp edges that something suddenly arrived at once one reaches the very top of mental functioning, but a process that is gradual, rather than all or nothing, and begins low down in the brain, rising up below the level of hemisphere before it reaches the Great Divide. End quote. Uh, so... Uh, Miguel Christ, and it sounds like there's a fair amount of literature confirming this, believes that consciousness is not something that is uh, displayed by the hemispheres, uh, but rather is something that the hemispheres, uh, that it's kind of conducted through the hemispheres. Uh, quote, the problem then becomes not how two wills can become one unified consciousness, but how one field of consciousness can accommodate two wills, end quote. Uh, and note the difference of the approach here. Uh, one is building from pieces, the... Uh, two wills becoming one unified consciousness, and then one is starting from the whole, the one field of consciousness accommodating two wills. Read left brain, right brain. Uh, he, he notes that there is a bit of a difference between consciousness and self-consciousness, and that self-consciousness is what is placed atop of consciousness. Um, he uses the uh, kind of common experience of you're driving on your work commute, and kind of all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, I've driven three or four miles and I have no memory of driving. I, I, I wasn't, you say I almost wasn't conscious, but of course you were conscious. Uh, it's not like you were sleeping or what have you, but you weren't self-conscious. You weren't thinking, you weren't observing that particular drive. Uh, and he, he claims that it is, uh, that consciousness is not so much of an entity as it is a process um that self-consciousness is more consciousness that is owned in on itself uh that attention it, it's attention that is placed on the attendee and using that he kind of concludes that this would fall under the purview of the left hemisphere he notes that schizophrenic uh patients who suffer from hyperconsciousness uh show a relative hypo function of the right hemisphere when compared to the left so too much self-consciousness and you know coincidentally or not so much, uh, a deficit on the right hemisphere. And they, in fact, often depict a detached observing eye in their paintings, uh, which is very creepy and reminds me of uh, the uh, you know, Lovecraft's uh, or the Lovecraftian stories that my friends and I would do in RPGs. Um, so in all of this, there's a question begged, uh, quote, wherein or by what part of the brain do the various modules that are identified by cognitive psychology get to be unified, end quote. Uh, and Quote, one answer to this is epistemological, that this is largely a problem created by the model of mind we have espoused, end quote. I.e., we're thinking about this from the left brain, parts the whole paradigm. Uh, there's an Indian scientist who I'm uh, going to botch his name. Uh, apologies. Ramachandran. Thank you. Thank you, Brevin. Uh, he describes uh, his experiments, um, quote, these flatly contradict the theory that the brain consists of a number of autonomous modules acting as a bucket brigade. Popularized by artificial intelligence researchers, the idea that the brain behaves like a computer, with each module performing a highly specialized job and sending its output to the next module is widely believed. But my experiments have taught me that this is not how the brain works. Its connections are extraordinarily liable and dynamic. Perceptions emerge as a result of, ex of reverberations of signals between different levels of the sensory hierarchy, indeed across different senses, end quote. Um, and then Miguel Cruz uh, wraps up by saying that, quote, experience is not just a stitching together at the topmost level of Gazaninga's patchwork of functions. Experience is already coherent in its wholeness at very low levels of the brain. 
And what higher levels do is not to put together bits, which is a left hemisphere fun- fashion, but to permit the growth of a unified whole, right hemisphere fashion, end quote. Uh, so all that to say, the two hemispheres provide us with two interpretations of consciousness. And that is where I will lead off and leave it to Brevin to do level three and others. Indeed. Uh, so yeah, the back half of chapter six is talking about level three. So this is sort of the long-term in the metaphor of the business relationship, what these two parties are going for uh, across all time. What's the pattern of their relationship? And so to that end, at least in my interpretation of it, uh, McGilchrist looks at uh, five asymmetries in between the two partners or the two hemispheres um, and sort of what the different patterns are that have emerged that he thinks we can observe that also then very much start bleeding over into the analysis that he plans on doing in the second half of the book, looking at Western civilization and whether or not it's aided and abetted uh, one hemisphere over the other. Um, So uh, first, just to recap uh, Stephen's very lucid summary, uh, just that 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 a consciousness may have more than one will and that those are important um and and that's the the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere uh respectively within whatever our experience of consciousness is there are two wills for lack of a better term uh competing to some degree inside that consciousness and there are asymmetries in between the the two hemispheres there are two ways uh which is this again is just very much a summary of a lot of the other stuff that we've talked about throughout um the previous five chapters but uh two two asymmetries that favor the right hemisphere the first is what he calls the ontological asymmetry which is just that the right hemisphere is the primary monitor of the world it's it's the eye on what exists outside of ourselves and that it's from that that, that the left represents the world and then transmits it back to the right hemisphere to enrich its analysis, uh, to put it in a left brain fashion. But regardless, the right hemisphere is the closest thing we have to our base interaction with the living world that's outside of us. And the, and the left hemisphere can never duplicate that. It can only represent the world. It doesn't experience the world directly. Uh, next is the asymmetry of function, which also favors the right hemisphere. And this is tied into what we just talked about, which is just that the left hemisphere needs to return to the right hemisphere, return to the unity so that it can be put to use if it wants to. I'm going to wait for that. Uh, the left hemisphere needs to return to the right hemisphere to unity so that it can be put to use to, uh, quote, to live. The left isn't base experience, but it does greatly enrich it. However, because it's not actual experience and because it's not directly linked to interaction and observation of the real world outside of us, it's not strictly necessary that there's there's a subordination of it ontologically and there's also a subordination of it functionally in that to be put to use, it has to return to the right hemisphere. Um, so obviously these two favor the right hemisphere and is a lot of what he's talked about, about why it's important for the right hemisphere to be the master in the relationship between the master and his emissary. Uh, However, there are several asymmetries that favor the left hemisphere that he argues have tilted the balance over time and um, put the left hemisphere squarely in charge and led to all sorts of pathologies in our modern view. Uh, So these three asymmetries are first the asymmetry of means, which is that the left hemisphere dominates because it's the closest thing to self to like a self-aware, self-conscious intellect. This is what Stephen was talking about, is that we have consciousness, and then we have self-consciousness, which is a separate uh, add-on on top of it. It's a specific kind of paying attention. And he very much identifies this self-consciousness, sort of thinking about thinking or thinking about yourself thinking with 
the left hemisphere because the left hemisphere is the one that has language that has voice that's that's analytic it builds up you know complex and understandable systems whereas the right hemisphere does not it's more holistic and um uh reactive to the world that exists and because of this the left hemisphere generates uh sequential knowledge it builds up things brick by brick whether or not that's an actual representation of how reality actually works is another question but you can't uh break down the right hemisphere's experience of the world except in the left hemisphere so what this ends up meaning is that the left hemisphere is the only knowledge really that can be transmitted to other people and this is why the um, language is centered there is that it can transmit the, the bits and pieces that hypothetically can lead to a whole so the ability of this to be passed on gives it a uh, lever up above the right hemisphere at least in terms of communication uh the second asymmetry that favors the left hemisphere is the asymmetry of structure and this is talking about specifically language and, and rationality and this is something that we've talked about in previous chapters but just to sum it up again language can't break out of the world that language creates except through poetry so philosophy can't break out of the the, the bars that language creates for it and it's the same thing with rationality there's the wittgenstein quote that's excellent you know that the per or, at least I think it's Wittgenstein, but the purpose of philosophy is, you know, to find the means on which to honorably surrender to poetry. Um, and because poetry, as we've talked about in previous chapters, is a way of using language that points to things that are bigger and not present in the strict interpretation of the language itself. It expands the world of the word beyond the word itself, um, much in the way that the right hemisphere uh, experiences the world. McGilchrist argues that so you can't escape these systems, but also there's an unwillingness of, of the left hemisphere to even try to escape these systems back over to, you know, giving up its authority to the right hemisphere. And he'll get uh, into more detail on this in the next section. He didn't give me much to sum up here. Uh, and then the final asymmetry that favors the left hemisphere is the asymmetry of interaction. This again is appears to lean uh, in a foreshadowy way much on the next section, but in short, it's that the healthy interaction between the two hemispheres would be from the right to the left and back to the right. And when there was an overcorrection in one direction of, or another, there would be, you know, a corresponding correction, like a pendulum. If you went too far in one way, you would go back to the other. Uh, but his metaphor to carry it on, at some point, the pendulum has swung too far and made the clock fall over. So now we're at a point where there's no self-correcting ability, um, which is at the core of whatever problem he's been trying to get at. And again, all the subject of part two, although there he, he does make some, some interesting arguments from several different philosophers, just talking about the state that knowledge and experience seems to be in, in with the viewpoint of um, with the modern worldview, which is just that we're in an infinite project of delimiting the world into different boxes in order to use and exploit it. But his suggestion is that despite the pendulum, and our clock falling over, that there still may be a way out. Um, and maybe he'll give us more of one than McIntyre gave us, but... Uh, Here's hoping. Know, I'm not going to put any money down on that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so to sum up our, our three different levels and, and the metaphor that we've gone over, uh, at level one, the hemisphere interaction is just fine. It's useful and stable. This is it at its best. They give and take. At level two, there's something out of shape. The modern worldview is tilted too much in one direction to the left hemisphere. And then at level three, we have these sort of more systematic asymmetries that have potential for wide ranging problems that uh, he's going to go into more in section two.
we are promised. Uh, just to add one final thing, the final part of chapter six is a coda, uh, which talks about the left hemisphere as a sleepwalker. And again, here we see sort of his project in context of the literature and, and discourse, which is he's saying that, um, you know, hypnosis is assumed to be uh, like that the right hemisphere is silent and something like hypnosis like brings it out to the surface. Like here's your hidden si silent consciousness that's sleepwalking through life. Here's it coming out. Uh, but he argues that, the, that that perception is erroneous, that it's false. It's the left hemisphere that is much more akin to a sleepwalker through life uh, in that it's it's systematically lost its ability to know when it's in danger, when it's in, you know, a, you know, infinite loop of uh, self-reference. And if we remind ourselves, as he does, of, of the uh, questions that we talked, I think in chapter five or maybe chapter four, but I, I think it was chapter five um, of the syllogism questions uh, about whether porcupines can climb, among other things. And the people with the uh, only and, and you disabled one hemisphere at a time and then uh, judged people's reactions. And this is on the assumption that porcupines can't climb, but the Russian scientists that did the experiment didn't actually know that some could. So it kind of ruins the impact of it. But if I didn't tell you that, you probably wouldn't know either. Um, so anyway, the uh, people with only the right hemisphere functioning when presented with a series of logical steps that ended with the conclusion that porcupines can climb, they would say, no, that's wrong. Porcupines can't climb. They, they, they had a holistic awareness of what they were saying, whereas the left hemisphere would follow the chain of logic only they would become trapped in the this follows from this this follows from this and lose out on the fact that the conclusion was on its face prima facie uh, blatantly incorrect and this is what he means by the sleepwalking left hemisphere is that it blithely follows logical forms and systems it has a willingness to accept absurd ideas it's stubborn it's uh, incredibly personally optimistic and just to end on a uh, brief quotation Quote, so if I am right, that the story of the Western world is one of increasing left hemisphere domination, we would not expect insight to be the keynote. Instead, we would expect a sort of insouciant optimism, the sleepwalker whistling a happy tune as he ambles towards the abyss. I now want to turn to the influence of the divided brain on Western culture. End quote. What a mic and, drop. Uh, what a mic drop. The sleepwalker ambling to the abyss. And, uh... Yeah, that's uh, that's where we are. Um, yeah. Uh, so, Stephen, what do you make of this chapter? I I enjoyed it. Um, especially he he did have kind of a very stylish way of uh, dividing this particular uh, chapter out into the three levels and then the coda. It just like may have been a little gimmicky, but I thought it was kind of cool. Um, it just gave it a little bit of a a, a zing to it. Um, I I also like how he very effectively distilled the kind of what the problem is with the left hemisphere in that the advantages the left hemisphere has gives it an ability to shut the right hemisphere down, whereas the right hemisphere's advantages give it supremacy, or at least give it the right to supremacy, but does not give it the ability to supremacy, whereas the advantages of the left hemisphere give it the ability to supremacy, but not the right. And so you do have this extreme asymmetry that gives, it, it's kind of this fundamentally unfair thing that the left hemisphere can usurp whenever it wants and kind of like has to by its own will not usurp even though it can because it should just know that that's not good whereas the right hemisphere just has to hope that the left hemisphere will recognize its supremacy yeah no i i, I think that's true i quite enjoyed this chapter too uh in part because it was i think one of the few chapters in this book so far that's actually structured decently um yeah 
that, that doesn't just kind of go from thing to thing. Um, I will say I felt a little bit betrayed by level three. It, it didn't it, it didn't quite fit into his metaphor as well as the um, first two levels. Uh, however, the whole part in level two talking about consciousness as or thinking of it as sort of two wills with one consciousness that blew my mind that was very very interesting because i mean i guess that's sort of been implicit in a lot of what we're talking about uh just with the two hemispheres having such a different character but to but to him finally condensing it down into that um made a lot of the previous stuff make sense and anyway i i I just found that very very cool which I and I'm really hoping he gets into this in the cultural commentary, but I do I don't know it, it definitely resonates uh, with my own experience in that like yes I have one unified field of consciousness, but there is kind of like I mean all throughout culture it seems that there have always been these narratives of people wrestling with different wills within themselves, uh, and so I like how this is he's actually explaining like yeah no that's because you do have two different wills it's your two hemispheres. Um, which provides a very concrete way of of discussing that, and I'm I'm really hoping he gets into um, that sort of uh, that sort of commentary. I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Indeed, I, I mean the it, it it is the back half that we that we've always been promised is the uh, mm-hmm. the best part. So, um, which I, I I will say in in credit for the first half, he has taken uh what I would assume very dry subject of uh. Neuro, like uh, neurology and uh, neuropsychiatry and phenomenology, and actually made it pretty interesting. He he does a pretty good job uh, displaying this for the the lay reader. Um, no, so I, yeah. I definitely appreciate that. No, yeah, I I think I agree with that, and and especially the um, going through the philosophers. I think in in chapter four, I think was particularly. Um, I, I enjoyed that quite a bit just because it, it's it was a lot of philosophers that I didn't have a lot of interactions with um, mm-hmm. throughout my education. And in his framing, you can see like what the core problem that they're wrestling with is. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, and it also sort of this th- this book makes a, a lot of sense, I think, indirectly about sort almost like the postmodern project and what that's because, I mean, what it's fighting against for better or worse, you know, and with better or worse forms is something like, you know, hyper left hemisphere dominance um, in in discourse and ways in analyzing the world. And it's trying to o- offer an alternative to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, right. Modernity would be very left oriented. Mm-hmm. It would be exactly. very much. Yeah. We are we are confident. We are optimistic. And then postmodernism is a, a pretty good attack on modernity. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's trying to resist it. Um, yeah, in in various ways. So uh, yeah, yeah, lots of good perspective in this book that I didn't uh, necessarily anticipate, but that I very much appreciate. It's it's intriguing that so McIntyre's uh, one of his big shticks was uh, ethics is uh, communal and it is narrative, mm-hmm. and that honestly that does sound more right brain oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a unified experience uh, that is, that is fit in context of many things. Whereas utilitarianism is a very left. We run these decisions through a mathematical equation, find out how to ma- maximize the good, minimize the bad, whatever these abstract concepts are. And then we just simply do those, uh, those actions. And so I, yeah, I, I, I know I've said about 50 times now, I'm looking forward to the cultural commentary. We all have, but I'm really hoping he gets into ethics as well. Uh, yeah. Because I think that this could be actually a nice tie-in 
uh, with McIntyre. What what you just said about um, ethics being communal in McIntyre um, struck a chord in that I wonder if he'll get into this, but just to throw out a hypothesis, um, if the left if left brain dominance. Okay, so so if if ethics is best experienced in a community, um, and and that would somewhat Im- imply, you know, that there's a or or let's just say that it's fairly evident that there is a upper limit to how big a community can be and still be and still maintain a certain kind of character. Mm-hmm. At some point, it starts being something other than a a uh, whatever it was before, and so. I can't help but wonder, but if if one of the diminishment of the um, proper place of the right hemisphere in governing the, our internals uh, is is not the enlargening of the world and the number of potential interactions, the size of communities, um, mm. and, and all that, where just you know where, whether that's a technical innovation or or, or what, but that, that that the circumstances of that. Uh, that the right hemisphere simply doesn't lend itself to whatever fellow feeling is possible. Uh, and, and so you fall back on, you know, abstract principles um, for the sake of governance, um, which would align with some other uh, ideological priors of mine. But anyway, I, I find that interesting. That, that's an interesting take and I'll actually cite two uh, of the articles that we have uh, brought up. First, uh, Sam's tree article. Do you remember that one? Uh, where everything is trees, uh, that energy flows through trees. And to an extent, I I, I think that would somewhat fit in here, uh, that at the very, like, at the most, uh, at at the very ending of the tree, at the leaf, as it were, you can have these communal experiences. But as you get further up the tree, uh, Hmm. because you need need whatever delivery mechanisms of whatever kind, be it power uh, in a... uh, uh, vaguely political sense or in you know an electricity sense it be it be it power be it um taxes be it roads be it what have you the higher up the tree you get the more abstract you get so i wonder if if almost the necessity of power and of politics is the higher up you get the more left brain you just have to get you can't you can't afford to see the 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 whole or to start from the whole and move to the parts you have to start with the parts and move to the whole um and then the second one is uh the uh, the rats article uh the rats of nim where mm. uh yeah you cram a bunch of people into uh, uh a, a massive uh i don't know city or what have you give them all that they want they'll still go insane hmm. <laughs> yeah and i mean just uh to bring up one more nerd point um that also interestingly seems to align with something like the general bent of uh adam smith's work where he has his theory of moral sentiments, which is building morality from sentiment, from sympathy, uh, from fellow feeling. But then in the economic realm, a much larger realm, um, it's a, I'm, I'm somewhat I'm somewhat bastardizing his work. But, you know, that there is the abstract invisible hand that appears to be directing forces on a on a large scale separated from any individual will. Hmm. Um, anyway, yeah. So I yeah, in in some uh section two better pay off or i'm gonna be real mad i think we all will be but so far he hasn't disappointed so i have full faith that he's gonna he's gonna deliver here indeed uh well speaking of delivering uh steven i believe you have an article for us indeed i have an article to deliver actually this one's uh a bit apropos of uh, of this um blade runner 2049 and i'll get on why it's apropos in a bit 
Uh, but Blade Runner 2049, it is an excellent film that came out, I believe, three or four years ago. Um, the sequel to the popular cyberpunk uh, dystopic movie Blade Runner. Uh, it, it, it came out and... Uh, these two gentlemen, uh, Jeremiah Webster and Zach Boyd, a professor and student at uh, Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington, where I used to live, uh, they wrote uh, a commentary on it that I actually quite enjoyed. So Blade Runner 2049, uh, for being a cyberpunk, ostensibly action, sci-fi, go get the bad guys and whatnot, actually wasn't anything like that. It was one of the most artistically uh, compelling narratives I've seen in quite some time. Uh, actually, the first time I saw it, I only saw the last half because I arrived to the theater way too late after having gone to the wrong theater to meet my friends. Uh, and I still loved it. It is incredible. If you haven't seen it, uh, make sure you do because it is quite well done. I'm going to try to keep spoilers. To no, I'm not going to try to keep spoilers to a minimum. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it and then listen to this. Uh, so these uh, these two uh, scholars, as it were, uh, open with the uh, rather funny paragraph that I think is uh, is worth quoting in full. Quote, lamenting modern cinema is easy. Optimus Prime never really dies. Second-rate superheroes revived against their will become a name. CGI bristles indulges in the excess of because we can, that's why. Nothing explodes like it used to. Into this digital wasteland comes a film with a smarter, more philosophical brand of dystopia on its mind. Blade Runner 2049, directed by Denis Villeneuve. I think, is a sequel to Ridley Scott's cyberpunk vision of replicants and off-world col colonies, serial-numbered fish scales, and implanted memories. It has all the trappings of a Hollywood sequel, big budget, blockbuster cast, and more CGI than you can track a motion uh, a, sorry, than you can shake a motion track stick at, end quote. Uh, and indeed, it does have all of these, uh, but man, is it is it so well done. Um, so, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, replicants are fake humans, as it were. So, the earlier models started out as actual robots with, you know, me mechanics and digitalized brains and all that. But eventually the uh, technology increased to the point where they can make organic replicants. And so the question becomes, are these replicants human or not? Uh, the main character is K and he is a Blade Runner and a Blade Runner is somebody whose job is to hunt down rogue replicants. And we open with K uh, finding one of these rogue re replicants and quote unquote retiring him, i.e. shooting him in the head. Uh, but before he shoots him in the head, he, he has a quick conversation with him and, and asks like why he's, why he's rebelled, why he's run and why he kind of almost why he thinks he has dignity. Um, and he says, you've never seen a miracle and, and dies with those words. Kay quickly finds out that, um, this, this replicant was part of a group that actually witnessed a replicant give birth, uh, which was hitherto unknown and actually launches Kay, um, and several different factions into a, a mad hunt for this child because this is such a novelty. Uh, and one the the villain uh, Wallace, who is one of the best villains I've ever seen um, created, he is the one that he is kind of the creator of the replicants. Uh, he took over the replicant uh, the replicant after the previous villain forget uh, Tyrell I, Tyrell Tyrell um, in the first movie died. Uh, so he took over, and uh, but he is unable to replicate this one replicants. Uh, ability to reproduce and he wants it um he he takes this very devilish uh figure um he's constantly quoting uh, uh milton and uh paradise lost uh he's he's ta he talks of storming uh eden and seizing her uh he is uh just on the whole this malevolent uh entity and his 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 goal is to be able to seize this uh this 
act of creation of of bearing a child. Uh, and throughout the movie, uh, childbearing and sexuality are are constantly uh, pointed at, but interestingly enough, completely separated. Uh, so the cityscape uh, of Los Angeles, uh, Cyberpunk Los Angeles 2049, is incredibly sexually explicit, um, disgustingly so. Uh, unsolicited pornography is uh, shown throughout the uh, streets. Uh, several very uncomfortable scenes of uh, you know holograms that are several stories high of naked women, uh, you know, trying to entice uh, buyers. You have uh, harems of prostitutes, replicant prostitutes, uh, you know, soliciting uh, you know would be buyers and whatnot. But the entire time, you never see a single child. Sex has been completely divorced from childbearing in the city. The children, on the other hand, are completely unwanted. They are working in scrapyards and factories and completely shunned away from society. The replicants who are unable to do this are all the ones desiring children. Because for them to be able to bear a child or to be born by a human, or born born period, born out of anything other than a vat, born born by a human, born by a replicant, is to have a soul. Uh, While all this is going on, Kay has uh, what is called a joy, uh, J-O-I, which is a a hologram uh, uh, female companion, as it were, who pretty much plays his wife. Uh, It's a product that you buy, and she will, you know, she'll, uh, you know, the the hologram will turn on as you enter your door. She'll cook you dinner. She'll, you know, change into whatever clothes that you want, uh, including, she'll, like, also, there's there's a rather interesting quasi disturbing but quasi endearing scene in which she actually hires a prostitute to have sex with Kay while her her image is over um because she wishes to copulate with Kay um and you have this constant question asking with joy is joy real uh you have kind of three levels you have humanity you have replicants and then you have the joy artificial intelligence all of all of whom are asking, "What is it to be human?" You have this excellent um, paradox between Joy and Kay. Joy can feel she, or at least ostensibly can feel, but she cannot live. She can't be. Uh, whereas Kay can be, but throughout the entire uh, movie, he cannot feel. Uh, he he wants to feel, but can't. Um, it's only when he finds out that he actually may have been the child that was born of. We find out Rachel, who is the protagonist of the uh, original Blade Runner and a replicant. It's only when he finds out that he may indeed have a soul having been born that he may that he starts experiencing emotions. And so throughout this, we are being asked time and time again, what, what is it to be human? Are replicants human? Is Joy a human? Or is she just simply doing what she's programmed to do? Is Kay simply doing what he was programmed to do? Um Throughout all this, there there's plenty to be un, uh, unpacked, and uh, unfortunately, I'm not doing a great job. But this article does an excellent job. Uh, the only the last thing I'll bring up to tie in with what we were talking about is uh, they they use uh, lines from Vladimir Nabokov's uh, book called Pale Fire, uh, and to to test if K is starting to crack, if he's starting to show signs of humanity. Um, he must remain apathetic whenever he whenever he kills a fellow replicant or and whatnot. And the, the poem given is, uh, here's, here's a snippet from it. Cells interlinked within cells interlinked within one stem and dreadfully distinct. Against the dark, a tall white fountain played. And this is used to pretty much poke at him and try to get him to feel, try to see how he feels by being this lone cell, um, by not being one with community, but rather simply just being this biological orga- organism that is 
interlinked with other biological organisms, but is not actual. Um, but uh, but is not part of them. Uh, and eventually, well, I won't I won't go into to any more. It, it is a, a fascinating movie. And this this article explores it really well. Um, so. I would definitely encourage you to read this article, and I would definitely encourage watch uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Yeah, excellent summary. I very much enjoyed that article uh, as well. It put a lot of the um, I haven't seen the original Blade Runner, but I've seen this one, and I thought it was good. But a lot of the I think uh, I don't know, like relatively decent bioethics for Hollywood uh, was completely lost on me until I read this. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I I think so. That I think was one of the things I was so delighted by. Um, it's an incredibly long movie. It's two hours and 45 minutes, not including the, I think, three or 30 minutes of prologue that you can watch. So they, they wrote uh, three short videos, um, one animated and two, um, uh, what's the opposite of animated? Live action. Live action. Thank you. Um, and uh, that, that kind of explores. So it's, it's three hours and 15 minutes of a very intentional exploration, uh, a philosophical exploration on what, of what it is to be human. Uh, and, uh, unfortunately, it actually didn't receive all that that great reviews because people went into it expecting an action sci-fi go shoot em up, and it is anything but. It certainly has action scenes, but they're not fun to watch. They're actually kind of horrifying. Um, mm. they're, they're, the violence is explicit and disgusting, and it, it does leave you wondering, okay, so is the, <laughs> a lot of the violence is perpetrated by humans. Are they human? Whereas the replicants are actually the ones that like really don't want this. Are they more human? And it just keeps poking at all these really interesting questions that I really appreciate. Yeah. I mean, the the thing that or the two big things that I took out of it, I think, was one was just the moral corruption of a materialistic world taken to its logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, if you want to blame capitalism or whatever, possibly I think you probably what you'd want to blame more is commodification. And that can likely happen under multiple systems. Um and just very much the distinction in between a sold world versus an unsold world and just how revolting and shallow and terrifying an unsold world really is. And that many, many people currently alive today in various positions of influence and power for whatever reason, either functionally believe in an unsold world or they don't think about it hard enough to realize that that's not what they want Um in the end yeah and and but i also think that there's that not that this movie necessarily reveals it but the article made me think about that that there is also dissatisfaction with the unsold world um and that both the left and the right politically and culturally whatever are trying to fight it in different ways i think with different levels of success or sustainability um and whether or not you know they're merely heightening contradictions that are going to implode whatever you know some are using methods with a longer track record of success um but there is also a reaction to it um, so, I mean, I guess that is at least one little bit of hope, uh, which is just that I don't know if we would go down as far, uh, as the movie would take us into that dystopian future. Um, but you know, who knows? And I mean, I'm at least grateful that movies like this do still come out every so often because they are a sign that people are still horrified by these sort of cultural phenomena that are starting to pop up more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shows that there is at least some amount of resistance to it. Indeed. 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 Uh, well, speaking of having some uh, resistance to something. Uh, Steven, do you have a rant for us? I sort of do. Uh, I've been trying to figure out how exactly to phrase this in a rant, but it's more just a frustration. So I uh, I recently started grad school, as uh, many of our listeners will uh, know. And 
uh, part of grad school, uh, part of the PhD program is getting getting funding. Uh, so thankfully, MSU is willing to pay for me during my five years, and that is great, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. But the ideal is actually getting a fellowship from some other organization because then MSU doesn't have to pay me. I don't have to work on what MSU wants me to work on. I can work on my own research, kind of whatever I want. So kind of everyone wins. Um, I also get paid a little bit more if I get a fellowship, which is great. Again, everyone wins. Uh and unfortunately, the process of applying to fellowships is uh, quite stressful. Um, you have to write personal statements. You have to get get references. You have to get uh, you have to pitch proposals on things that you're start just starting to crack into the the surface of. And nobody, oh, am I just am I ready to be done? It is a whole thing. Um, they're uh, yeah, uh, they're they're great. Like I want to, I want to complain about them, but they're in essence saying, hey, we'll pay you to you know study, and so. There's nothing really to complain about. They're great, but man, do I just wish I could not jump through all these hoops to, to get them. And that's about that. Okay. Uh, so for my rant, uh, this morning I went to the White House. I live in D.C. now uh, to take the uh, fall garden tour. Uh, lots of members of the public. It's like I think one of the two times a year I think they said that the White House grounds are open just for anyone to walk in walk around uh, more or less uh so we walked around you know saw the white house uh front lawn or back lawn actually i think um you know the gardens where they grow food and lots of trees uh everywhere but oh and also a beehive which was pretty cool i didn't know that they had those um but the the, the thing that my rant is about is that uh there are numerous trees on the white house lawn each of which is planted by uh, either a president or a first lady or both. And my rant is simply that I don't understand how that process works and how they decide who gets to plant a tree. Because in, in some cases, it's like Melania Trump planted this tree or Lady Bird Johnson planted this tree. But then other ones, it's Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan planted this tree or uh, Jimmy Carter planted this tree. And just like, it goes back and forth with no seeming logic. And I also try to figure it out, like, because some presidents and or their slash wives have more than one tree some only have one and then again some do it alone some do it together and there's no clear pattern that i can find like i thought maybe it was like you get one tree per term uh, but that doesn't quite necessarily seem to be what it is because the dates don't line up and, and again as i previously mentioned like who's planting which trees also don't matter is it like do they have to plant a tree from their home state and it's just been bugging me this whole time so now all i really want is like for some president to come along. Oh, and then also, what do they do once they run out of spaces for trees? Because there, there's not unlimited space on the White House lawn. Like at some point, they are going to run out of space for trees or just, I don't know, have to start cutting down other people's trees. Um, so I would just love someone to like give me like a two sentence uh, list of, of the rules regarding the White House trees. Um, I also think it would be super like alpha for someone to go around and just like uproot everyone else's tree. And I was like, nope. All their trees suck. It's all, it's all my trees now. Um, and also, I don't know. I wonder if anyone could stop them. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, that is my uh, lackluster rant. But anyway, the White House has trees and I don't understand them. Steven oh, oops. I was, double, I was double muted. I was muted both on my... Yeah, okay. Um... So I am curious, I, of all the power moves, like, all, or sorry, of all the presidents to do such an alpha power move, uh, it probably would be this one, this current one, either that or maybe Reagan. I could see Reagan doing that as mm -hmm. well. But mm -hmm. I'm curious, did you see one planted by Obama? Because 
with Trump's pathological obsession of like hitting control Z on everything Obama's done, I could totally see him like <laughs> in the dead of night, like, <laughs> doing that with an action and then just going to town on it. Maybe not even actually doing a full cut down, but like just mangling the crap out of it. I don't remember specifically seeing an Obama tree now that I think about it. I, I saw mean, lots of one by the Clintons. I saw the Trump. It's possible it's just in a different part of the, the garden that we didn't go to, but I didn't know. Yeah, you're right. I will say the one person who has the most alpha tree, uh, which also lines up with his personality, is Lyndon B. Johnson, who, oh, no, wait, no, no, no sorry, sorry, not Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, oh, oh, JFK. JFK has, uh, has the yep. most tree because it's right at the corner of the Rose Garden. So it's super duper prominent. Um, and it has like three different, uh, not stems, what do you call the trunks? Three different trunks. Um, so Anz and I were making jokes about how it's the uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a Catholic <laughs> president. You know, he was uh, obviously making a nod to where his ultimate allegiances lie, which of course was in the Vatican, as we all know. Of course, um, indeed. Uh, so, Stephen, any uh, final thoughts to take us home with? I miss Sam. I miss damn. Like I like you, Stephen, but yeah, I get it. No, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. There's there's an emergent quality with Sam that you know. We just reach this. You, 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 you can't just like switch around the parts and come up with a different. Like the whole is so much less than have just like it's not just minus Sam. It's minus the world. You know exactly. We like in losing Sam. We do not. We, we are. We are just left brain trying to assemble things from the pieces. We need mm-hmm. the whole. We need the whole. We need the whole. God damn it, Sam! Come home soon. Quit uh, hobnobbing with all the intellectual powers that be in the future leaders of America. Indeed. Uh, so with that despairing note, uh, for everyone, meaning us too, lonely too, here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And uh, go plant a tree on the White House lawn at midnight. It's probably a uh, felony, but worth it. Worth it. So when you say we too, you mean we too, we happy too, we band of two? Indeed. We we, we happy few. Indeed. <sighs> have you heard of the game um, We Happy Few? Uh, yeah, actually I have. Um, I've seen a couple of, not full playthroughs, but like people playing it. It looked it looked like a great idea. I'm, yeah. I, I'm just, I'm not a huge fan of open world stuff. 